0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Welcome to The Rest is History. The American Civil War was an extraordinary narrative of twists and turns death-defying escapes and thrilling cliffhangers. But no cliffhanger was more exciting than that on which we ended the last episode with Professor Adam Smith of Oxford University poised to answer my question, cruelly cut off, actually, very rudely cut off, some might say, um, <laughs> from, from answering my question about whether the surrender at Appomattox, when Robert E. Lee threw in the towel to the Union General, Ulysses Grant, whether in that moment were the seeds of some of the later problems um, that the United States had with Reconstruction, with the legacy of the war, and particularly with the idea of the lost cause and the South having fought for this noble cause and they're all friends again and hurrah, hurrah, and, and, and all of that stuff. So, Adam, what's the story? Do you think Appomattox was, was a problem? You are entirely correct in my view, Dominic. Uh, uh, so that's why Dominic wanted
1: it <laughs> answered so urgently. I see now. <laughs> when robert e lee surrendered he issued a message to his troops in which he said after four years of arduous service marked by unsurpassed courage and fortitude the army of northern virginia has been compelled to yield to overwhelming numbers and resources in that sentence you have the lost cause myth encapsulated that is the essence of it lee as you as you said at the end of the last episode, um, and his officers were allowed to keep their sidearms, they were allowed to keep their horses if they had them, and they were allowed to ride back into private life. Lee went on to become a college president, and there was no hint or serious threat of prosecution or any kind of treatment that you might expect a traitor to a country to suffer having led a failed rebellion
2: he he didn't get his u.s citizenship back though did he because i i know this because i um i read yesterday that actually the person who did grant him his citizenship back was um dominic's old friend president gerald ford apparently very great man very great man but
0: (laughs) Mm. not 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 infallible but i hadn't
2: (laughs) realized but but i hadn't realized that so, so do they 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 remain kind of Non-citizens. So the leaders
1: of the Confederacy were were prescribed and had to petition. Only the leaders. Only the leaders. And they had to petition for to be allowed to vote, essentially to be allowed back into um, full citizenship. And many of them, most of them probably were uh, in the years after the war. But Lee um, was a bit too prominent. And in any case, he died before... I mean, he died in 1870, so you know, he might have had some success a few years later.
0: To tie up one other loose end, Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, we'll come to the president of the Union and what happens to him in a second, but the president of the Confederacy, what happens to Jefferson Davis? Well, he
1: is in prison for a couple of years. It's quite a luxurious imprisonment, and he uses his time to write a book in which he makes the case that this great rebellion that he's led was all about constitutional principle and nothing at all to do with slavery. So already... They're starting to rewrite the history. White Southerners are rewriting history from even before Appomattox, actually, but certainly from after Appomattox,
0: that the war was not about slavery. But Adam, here's an interesting thing, though. So in 1861, when they broke away, um, a moment we haven't talked about, the vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens, gives this incredibly famous speech, this inflammatory speech, really. I think it's called a cornerstone speech, isn't it? Mm. Where he basically says, let's make no bones about it our state is founded on white supremacy, on the idea that white people are better than black people. They always will be. There's an end to it. So so white supremacy and slavery are right there in the Confederacy from the very beginning. So why is it, I mean, if they really believe in this, why is Jefferson Davis and why are other Southerners at the end of the war saying, oh, well, actually, no, it was just about states' rights and the Constitution. I mean, Does that suggest that they had always secretly felt guilty about slavery or why have they ditched the principle for which they had fought so quickly at the end of the war? I know it's been slavery has been abolished, but why aren't they still saying it was a disgrace that you abolished slavery? Slavery was brilliant. I mean, why are they not making that case? Well, some of them some of them do make the case, not that it was a disgrace that you abolished
1: slavery, so much as wasn't it a sad thing, really. Right. You know, much in the way that in Chekhov plays there's a kind of nostalgia for the days of serfdom. This notion that, you know, actually things were a lot more stable and everybody knew where they were and fundamentally everybody was happier. Um so there is there is that part of it. And uh, and I think that, you know, that continues long into the 20th, probably into the 21st century, this this lingering sense that actually maybe slavery really, you know, we would have been better if we'd kept it. But it was alongside this kind of tacit acceptance that, well, you know, look, it's gone everywhere else in the world um, and that it, this is not a hill anymore on which it's possible to die, even if they wanted to. And of course, what they definitely don't do is to move away from their commitment to maintaining white home rule or white white supremacy in, in the southern states. In fact, they remain as committed to that as ever. So the line in the south in the immediate aftermath of the war is, okay, well, we will grudgingly, reluctantly um, accept that our bid for independence is over, and we will even, if we absolutely have to, accept that slavery in the form that had existed up until now looks like that's gone as well, This has been a devastating experience for all of us. We've all lost thousands of dollars of property, including our property and human beings. But what we absolutely will not do is to uh, knuckle under the, the yoke of the Yankee radical Jacobins who have now taken power in Washington. And so we will not cede our right to control racial affairs in the South. And on that, they do not yield and they win.
2: Okay, yeah, for generations. Okay, okay. so let, we'll 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 come to the implications of that in a minute. But you mentioned the the radical Yankee Jacobins in Washington, uh, and of course there is one particular uh, radical Jacobin Yankee in Washington who dies almost immediately, and that of course is Abraham Lincoln. And what is the impact of that? And he he is
1: shot in a theater, unfortunately for. A uh, clergyman. It's unfortunate that it's in a theatre, but it's on Good Friday, eighteen sixty-five. Uh, he actually dies early the next morning. And so the sermons r- write themselves right that Sunday as the news spreads around the Union that Abraham Lincoln has sacrificed his life that the Union might live.
0: And he's literally been shot by an act- by somebody, John Wilkes Booth, an actor, because he had said talked about giving black men the right to vote. That's right, isn't it? Yes, that's
1: almost certainly the case. Um, I mean, Booth was in the crowd when Lincoln gave his last public address, as it's called, in which he speculated about giving black people the vote. And Booth, who Lincoln had seen perform, was a well-known Shakespearean actor, part of a a well-known acting family. Um, Booth felt himself to be um, the instrument of God in doing God's
0: work in in killing the the tyrant Lincoln. So it's an extraordinary end to the war. I mean, it's as though you know Churchill was shot within moments of um, of, of Hitler's suicide in his bunker or something, because it it means that the end of the war has this kind of very elegiate bittersweet, quality. yeah, elegiac mm. quality. But it also raises this question. Well, what, what's good? I mean, you mentioned, you said already, the South win. Yeah, you know, they win their bid for racial control. They win that bit of it. Yeah, they win in that sense. So so had Lincoln, I mean, does Lincoln's death make any difference or are we overemphasizing the importance of Warren as an in inverted as great man? I'm sure it does make a difference. But, you know, I don't I really don't
1: know in the end what difference it would have made. I mean, I can't help but feel that it does. It did matter because Lincoln was had a political dexterity, an understanding of how to work with Congress, and a vastly greater ability to channel public opinion to lead public opinion than his successor Andrew Johnson ever had. In you know, in spades. I mean, there's just no comparison. Yeah. But that said, exactly what would Lincoln have done differently? That is, of course, where it becomes very difficult to say, because in the end, he would have been dealing with the same set of challenges as Andrew Johnson was facing, with the same set of incompatible demands of, on the one hand, uh, white Southerners saying, well, look, if you want to... If you want to maintain stability, if you want to maintain national security and prevent the recurrence of this rebellion, then you have to do business with
2: us. Sorry, just to turn Dominic's question on the head. That it, I mean, is there not another way of framing it, which is to say the fact that Lincoln dies immediately after the war and before he can kind of dirty his hands with muddy compromises means that in the long run, he can serve as a of of everything that is best about America, everything okay. that is noblest about America, kind of uncorrupted by the grubby compromises he might otherwise have had to make oh unquestionably if the question is about lincoln's image that's undoubtedly true can i read a bit of whitman do go for it because C- i was going to use this and then dominic insisted in crowbarring his i don't think crowbarring is the word no Tom. i think you actually did you complained about being cut off at the end of the previous episode meaning that we couldn't have some walt whitman <laughs> so this is uh will be familiar to to uh, all fans of Dead deadpert society Oh, captain, my captain, our fearful trip is done. The ship has weathered every rack, the prize we sought is won. The port is near, the bells I hear, the people all exulting. While follow eyes, the steady keel, the vessel grim and daring. But oh, heart, 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 oh, the bleeding drops of red, where on the deck my captain lies, fallen cold and dead. It was
0: like listening to Robin Williams. That.
2: <laughs> was similarly inspirational. I mean, just one of the kind of amazing sequence of poems that Whitman wrote over that year of 1865, um, kind of it. I mean, you know, and the fact that he dies on Good Friday, I mean, as you say, I mean,
0: it enshrines Lincoln as this great emblem of liberty. I agree with you, Tom, that it, it absolutely that his death absolutely enshrines him as this uncorrupted figure. Because it's, I mean, okay. So, Adam, you may completely disagree with me, but my view would be the North is in an impossible position at the end of the the war because to it, to force the White South to to completely redraw their their arrangements, but also their kind of their assumptions, their intellectual and cultural assumptions about their, their 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 new black neighbors would require presumably keeping an army in the South for 10 years, 20 years. Because, I mean, they they quite quickly are facing clan paramilitary violence to try and retake control for the old Southern elite. So do you think, I mean, the North's heart was never in that, was it?
1: No, I, I don't disagree. On the contrary, I, I, I strongly agree with you. I think probably most other historians writing about this at the moment would disagree with us both. <laughs> right? So, what would they think, though? What's their what's their case, right? Well, I, I, uh, the, I, the the way in which Reconstruction, this period uh, after the Civil War, is usually written about, is as a kind of disgraceful, head shaking series of missed opportunities. You know, and if it only went for the the, the supine nature of, of the individual people and of the northern public at certain moments, then maybe, maybe, maybe something greater could have been achieved and a, you know, a biracial democracy could have been properly established. But I completely agree with you, Dominic. I don't think that was ever going to happen. And I think the, you know, the, the, the thing was, in 1865, northerners, they'd done the job. There wasn't anything else to do, really, for most of them, because they'd, they'd secured the union. The only thing they were really, really concerned about were any future dangers to the union. And so Reconstruction for most Northerners, not for the, there were always, there were radical Republicans who were completely and genuinely and sincerely committed to equal citizenship for African-American people. And they won some stunning political successes. Most of all, the passage of the 14th Amendment, which states exactly what I've just said, which grants citizenship to black people or everybody born in the United States and therefore including black people, and then gives them Uh, equal rights uh, under the law on paper, on parchment. And they were always, that but that was an amazing radical success. In my view, the great majority of white northerners were never that bothered about any of that. What they didn't want to have to do was to fight another war. They didn't want white enslavers, the slave power, lording it over them over again. They were quite happy to see the, the South impoverished and marginalized. Um, but they, in the end, were not that bothered about the idea of the South controlling their own racial order, because after all, that's what they wanted to do back home in the North as well. And, you know, it's one thing to be enfranchising. You, you could genuinely think in Massachusetts as a Republican. Yes, let's enfranchise black people in South Carolina if that helps to prop up the Republican Party in South Carolina and keeps those rebels out of power for a bit longer. But hang on, don't tell me that I've got to enfranchise Irish immigrants as soon as they walk off the boat. I want the right to regulate the franchise here in Massachusetts, the people I don't like. So um, they, they wanted to control who took part in the polity, just as, as Southern.
2: and is there also the case that um uh, history starts you know the conveyor belt starts moving again and american expansion happens and suddenly what's happened in this narrow strip of land between richmond and washington suddenly seems rather peripheral compared to the vast expanses of the west and manifest destiny and things like that and that people you know their focus they want to um, make money opportunities to make money the gilded age everything's churning and suddenly this is yesterday's history let's leave them in their kind of backwards
1: I think I wouldn't I I, I agree with the with the the gist of what you're saying I, I, I don't think it it made what happened between Richmond and and Washington peripheral I think it made it to quote a Mid twentieth century scholar, a kind of treasury of virtue, something that they could return to. Right, wonderful stories that made them feel good about themselves as a nation. Because after all, they just you know, just as the British had 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 been self congratulating themselves since the eighteen thirties for having abolished slavery, now the Americans could do it, but they had died yeah in order to end slavery and to remove the sin of slavery from the national escutcheon. There we are. Have you ever heard the word escutcheon in this programme before? You probably
2: have.
0: Uh, I think this is quite an escutcheon heavy podcast. Yeah, this is.
2: <laughs> um, I think when we come back, we should look at how the, the Civil War is, is understood now. But just just to pick up on that idea of it providing mythology, would there be a case for saying that that in a way the mythology is perhaps the most important legacy and there are two myths. There's the, the myth of the lost cause, romantic cavaliers, all that kind of stuff. And there's the myth of that that is kind of sanctified by Lincoln's assassination of a virtuous, freedom-loving people who have sacrificed, you know, not just their president, but the lives of their sons and fathers and brothers on the cause of liberty and racial equality, and that both of those two myths feeding into the 20th century are still kind of reverberating into the 21st century. Absolutely. Brilliantly put. Okay, well, fabulous. (laughs) On that that note, let's go to a commercial
0: break. Hello, everybody. Now, regular listeners will know that from time to time, we like to talk about an article from Unheard, the online magazine for which both of us have written and which kindly sponsors The Rest is History. And this week, it's a very striking piece by their staff writer, Will Lloyd, very good writer. And it's called How to Fly a Spitfire. And Will describes the final gathering of Project Propeller, which is the annual get together of Royal Air Force veterans from the Second World War. There's only a few of them left and it's meeting this year for the very last time, or probably the very last time anyway. People are exquisitely careful with them, Will writes, utterly decorous and graceful. They're so valuable, and there are so few of them left. It's as if we're in a room with Henry's longbowmen or Nelson's sailors. Our scope for reverence, usually so limited, is much larger here. And Will goes on to describe the extraordinary moment when Bill Williams, a 101-year-old veteran, is handed the controls of a Cessna mid-flight and allowed to fly once again. It feels heavier than a Spitfire, he mutters to himself in the headset. He's attentive, composed, professional. Bill flew a thousand hours in the war. Suddenly a man who cannot walk has his wings back. I watch him closely, everyone in the plane does. Bill looks younger, visibly freshened. He's 20 again, avoiding purple-black monsoon clouds above a Burmese delta. He's not flying. He's travelling back in time. There's only one thing it makes sense to ask him. How does it feel to be back? Oh. He pauses, searching for the right word. It's wonderful. Now, Unheard publishes lots of original long reads like this, and it tackles politics and all kinds of world issues through the lens of history and philosophy every day. It's normally a pound a week, but you guessed it, there is a special offer for Rest is History subscribers to try it out. So that means you will get the first three months free. And if you don't like it, you can always cancel. So go to unheard.com slash rest to check it out. That's unheard.com slash rest. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Now, before we get... More deeply into the way the the, the war itself is remembered, um, Adam. Uh, the war was followed by a period of reconstruction, which you know certainly when I studied it at university, the, the story of reconstruction was that it was a, a failure. That Black Americans a generation or so later, okay, they weren't enslaved anymore, but they were very much second class citizens. They were segregated. All of these kinds of things. Is that basically how most? historian american historians think about reconstruction now as this sort of utter disaster and and sort of tragedy and or do they see some some good in it or do they think it was inevitable or or what because obviously now the in a 21st century these things have incendiary kind of political meanings don't they i think it's it's not just that it's not so much that it was a tragedy but that it was there
1: were missed opportunities that it was an unfinished revolution and some of the things that happened in Reconstruction were were crucial to advances that were later made towards racial justice. So the 14th Amendment, which puts into the Constitution for the first time, defines citizenship for the first time, and in such a way as to include African Americans, even though the 14th Amendment was disregarded or violated in practice for decades and decades after uh, it was... Uh, after it was passed was nevertheless there in the constitution as something that could be invoked and was invoked by Martin Luther King. If we if we are wrong then the constitution of the United States is wrong, King said in the 1950s, referring not really to the original constitution of 1787 but to the 14th amendment which was passed in the wake of the American Civil War and as a direct result of it. So in, in that sense, what happened after the Civil War is of huge consequence, even though the condition of African-American people by the end of the 19th century was dire by by any measure. They were completely marginalized within Southern society. They were subjected to systematic violence in the form of lynching and other forms of intimidation and Um, violent action they uh, were in practice denied the right to vote even though they theoretically had it they were excluded from jury service and in practice from much property ownership and were lived on the margins of white society and of course continued to
2: do so for long into the 20th century and and beyond and in the 21st century because when you when you when you began your career um looking at this period specializing in this period did did you have a sense of it becoming kind of ever more politically combustible as an issue within contemporary United States? So 20 years ago, or so,
1: when I, more than that, when I first started studying this period, it seemed it was possible for me, especially perhaps as a British person to study the American Civil War in much the way that I might have studied the English Civil War. Um, there were a set of fascinating interlocking intellectual problems that I wanted to understand. It didn't really feel back then in the 90s in that kind of Clinton era as if what I was dealing with was live American politics, even though it obviously was. And on some level, I must have known that. And I did know that, you know, you walk around the South, you drive around the South back then in the 90s and the number of Confederate monuments. And I remember being struck and kind of appalled and fascinated by The centrality of them all. But they weren't really a big political issue then, were they? And they've become
2: so now, those monuments and and everything else that's gone along with it. So have you been surprised by by what's happened or did you have a sense that this was something that was going to happen or? I can't. I I mean, I can't really say that I had some amazing uh, prescient
1: understanding that this was an issue that was going to explode exactly um, when it did. But I suppose on some level, yes, and I suppose everybody else studying the American Civil War realised that it was unfinished business. There was never a sense, even at the end of the 20th century, when I got into this world, that this was entirely settled history. It's just that it was sleeping history then.
2: So there's a a, a great question here from Lindsay Hopkins, um, who asks... How can contemporary historians approach the subject and analyze the evidence without bias or preconceptions while the issues surrounding the conflict remain so viscerally alive in american culture? i mean I guess that 's a question that all historians you know we 're all influenced by the the context in which we work and by our assumptions and biases and so on. but it does seem i mean it 's writing about the Civil war at the moment must be like sitting in the library while there 's a kind of blazing fire all around it. yeah, it does feel like that. And actually I mean you probably don't want to get into this, but actually
1: not being in an American university I think is quite helpful <laughs> I can't say it's Actually studying this from Oxford it in some ways insulates me from that fire. I can see it happening across the Atlantic, but it's not actually really happening all around me. But um but no, the I mean the answer yes, it is it is really hard and it's very difficult. There's large sections of the American population right now who are you know, who feel real pain and a deep burning sense of injustice, which is directly and correctly connected to the experience of the 19th century. And it's, it's kind of facile and irresponsible to kind of pretend that that isn't the reality, that the battles that we've been talking about in these podcasts are still being fought out, and that the question of who controls, who rules at home, who are the members of this polity who get to decide what are the rules of the game. Those are the battles of American history from before the Civil War. And they're still the battles of America today. And so those of us who work in the Civil War era are writing about issues which are of direct and immediate relevance. How do you do that without being it, which you can't do it. I mean, as you say, Tom, I mean, you can't when you write about anything, um, as a historian, you can't but be influenced by the present. At least what I try to do in my work is to always try to understand how political ideas and concepts and terms are used, were used at the time by the people using them. And that can be a very difficult thing to do when you know that there are issues being discussed in the past that seem on the surface and, and often are in reality so similar to those being discussed today. And yet often the assumptions that go into the judgments being made by people at the time are different from the ones that people made today. And it's, so it's a question of historical reconstruction to try to get ourselves into the minds of the people and to understand the pastness of the past, even though we're also understanding its connectedness
0: to the present. But Adam, that thing about understanding the pastness of the past, I mean, obviously, all historians try to do that, as you say. and But you raised an interesting comparison with the English Civil War, so or the British Civil Wars, as they're now called. So, So that period has always had a, a lot of political baggage. You know, Marxists were very interested in the civil wars of the of the 17th century and and still are. And you know, the sort of Christopher Hill all the arguments about the levelers and Oliver Cromwell and stuff. That was all great fun. It was all great historiographical fun in kind of post-war Britain. It it didn't remotely have the charge that the American Civil War. I mean, maybe maybe the the closest that it comes is Cromwell's what Cromwell did in ireland
2: maybe but i don't think that's i mean not not i mean i know not remotely but 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 there is a
0: you know yeah. it is vivid that is a vivid and alive issue perhaps maybe that's as, as close as you get but do you think in in our lifetime historians will ever be able to write about this will ever get to a point where they're writing about this period about abolition about slavery and reconstruction um it, with the same degree of distance sort almost emotional distance i suppose the psychological distance that we in Britain have with our own civil war or do you think the i mean i suppose you'd only get to that point when those issues are settled wouldn't you and they're not going to be settled no
1: yeah no i mean the answer to the question is no i don't because i don't think in our lifetimes in my lifetime anyway um i i don't imagine that these issues of racial justice in the united states are going to be resolved in a way that will enable that people to write in that with that kind of tone no and so so long as race is still a central issue in america and it will always be the Civil War will still be
2: a live question. And Can I ask, um, the, the weight, I mean, not just the weight, the totality of liberal opinion is obviously very strongly of the opinion that the Union was in the right and that the right side won in the Civil War. Within America, what's the balance of sympathy with the Confederacy, with the kind of the myths that it has, the the ideals that it has articulated and so on? Um because I, I, I find it hard to get a sense, a handle on that.
1: I think that the, the kind of brilliance of the neo Confederate operation over 150 years has been that it has meant that it is possible and it is still possible to literally hold a Confederate flag in one hand and a United States flag in the other. You can embrace the values of the Confederacy. It's our heritage, it's our history, they're our ancestors they were fighting for real american ideals and yet somehow conveniently ignore the fact that they were traitors that they were rebels <laughs> yeah yeah and but it is because they were the continuity usa i mean that was that was what the confederates themselves were doing they were trying to create a separate uh confederacy but they were trying to do it in the name of the original revolution of 1776
2: well adam i came across this amazing detail which i didn't know but it turned out that loads of experts in submarines knew that in the 50s when the the u.s navy launched a, a fleet of ballistic missile submarines um the uss robert e lee was the third commissioned and the first was the george washington the second was the patrick henry and the fourth was the Abraham lincoln so lee lee gave his name to a u.s navy submarine before lincoln that presumably would not happen now Well, it wouldn't happen right now. Right, right, right now. I mean, of course, there's, there's been
1: a commission, um, uh, which is, I think, as we're recording, just about to report on renaming Confederate um, bases of which, you know, there are hundreds of um, not just bases, but other kinds of military installations and ships and, and so on that are named after Confederates, mostly uh, military figures. Um, There's a huge portrait of Robert E. Lee in West Point. And so what's the balance of opinion on that, though? Well, I think things have tipped, but very recently. And I think they've, it, the re, it's been the reaction to the Trump presidency. So Trump is the president who has most overtly championed Confederate causes, uh,
2: well, ever, certainly since the Civil War. But he might win the next election. He might. So, so uh, presumably there's still a substantial support for this perspective. Yeah, clearly, clearly. Because I was, I was, I was struck, listen, I, I thought oh, I should get myself in the mood by, um, you know, play, before this podcast by playing some suitable music. So I played the Jane Bears, the famous Jane Bears song, um, what was it, The Day They Drove Old Dixie Down, hmm. which I hadn't listened to for years. And it never particularly struck me as
0: <laughs> problematic, as uh, one might say. But, Tom, I mean, you, you merely have to – I mean, even growing up in Britain in the 1970s, I, I've mentioned before about history books showing Confederates as cavaliers. I mean, you think you, you would have grown up seeing the Dukes of Hazard, seeing the Confederate flag on the car, you know, the General Lee car. You would have grown up, you know, with – I don't know, is it Lynyrd Skynyrd, Um With kind of music that, that – uh, pop music, rock music that um, exalts the South and the idea of the South as special – um, that it has a distinct history, a history of sort of courtesy and gentility and tradition and all of these kinds of things. And, of course, that often is not explicitly linked to the Lost Cause or to the Civil War. But it's always there, isn't it, Adam, hanging in the background, do you think? Yeah.
1: And so that that's why it's so difficult to answer Tom's question about the balance here. Because I think probably for most people, for most Americans, the two things are so hard to unpick. You know, he, at least until quite recently, even people who would regard themselves as you know, extremely liberal and racially egalitarian would have, let's just say, a sneaking admiration for Stonewall Jackson, right? Or for Robert E. Lee you would have a portrait, have a little postcard of him on their bookshelf, you know? And why not? What harm can it possibly do? And so what's, what's happened really in the, just the last few years has been this new kind of militant neo-abolitionism where they are saying, just as people in the 1860s said, as radical Republicans, as Frederick Douglass said, no, let us not give them any quarter. These people were racist and enslavers and they were traitors.
2: Okay, but Adam, so a question. So, so Robert E. Lee was a slave owner and he seems to have fought, he, taken the side he did because he wanted to keep possession of the plantations and the slaves that they brought. Stable Jackson, slightly more ambivalent figure, as far as I know, didn't keep slaves, uh, didn't support slavery, uh, taught Sunday school to black children, but fought on the side of the Confederacy. So how is, how is he... But to that's a doing? very fine distinction. That I, well, I, I,
0: well, I
1: know. I, know, I mean, it's, it's an important that. distinction historically, but I think in terms of this point about the, the lingering sense that the myth of the Confederacy and the Old South has become imbricated in the idea of America and what it is to be American, then I think that kind of Confederate chic, the admiration of these... Uh, glamorous, fascinating, Confederate, brave, talented Confederate leaders of whom Jackson is, is a prominent example. It, you know, it, it's, all, it's all part and parcel of the same thing.
2: Yeah. And it's also tied, I mean, I, because, of course, the, in a way, the archetype of the, the dashing Confederate cavalier is someone who fought on the Union side, which is General Custer yes <laughs> who likewise was kind of eulogized as a hero and now is similarly seen in kind of far more ambivalent
0: terms i mean the thing is though tom surely i mean let's you know um, even as a as a as a briton it would be very hard as even even insisting stubbornly on one's outsider status it would be hard at the very least, to go into a bar in America full of black people and to say, "Oh, I've got a great admiration for Robert E. Lee. What a tremendous commander!" and all this, don't you think? I mean, I think it would seem a monstrous thing to do. To, I mean, a lot of people in America would say that's like going into a pub full of Jews and saying, "Actually, Rommel was a tremendous fellow."
2: Well, so, so that is the other. That is the other great shadow that hangs over the whole story now that didn't say in the 1860s is the experience of the, of the second world war and, and what the Nazis did. And, and that is another parallel that
0: is often drawn, but a parallel would actually then turn that around, Tom. I mean, I I would agree with you. You made that parallel, but again, you wouldn't walk into a bar in Atlanta full of white people and say, your ancestors were a pack of Nazis. no, I, I mean, maybe but maybe bars aren't the place to have the nuanced discussions <laughs> of the American Civil War, full stop. Just stop going to bars. Adam, is there a way through this? Do you think that in, I mean, you said basically in our lifetime, no.
1: Well, I don't don't think in our lifetime, the Civil War is going to be something that can be written about with the same sense of distance that we can write about the Wars of the Roses. So I think that was the sort of implication of your question. What we're already seeing, though, is the visibility of Confederate memorialization becoming more and more marginalized. You know, we're we're pretty close to a situation now where you're not going to go around seeing Confederate monuments anywhere in the United States. There aren't going to be Uh, nuclear submarines or anything else named after Confederate generals. So there is a stigma now, which there wasn't even 10 years ago. There's a stigma now attached to the Confederacy, which for the first time, really for the first time since since the 1860s. And so how that will play out in coming generations. No one's going to write like William Faulkner anymore. No white Southern boy unless they are self-consciously kind of radicalized and a white supremacist, are going to write with the, with the innocent romanticism that Faulkner was able to imagine a white Southern boy writing in 1948. Is, is that
2: also going to be true of, say, Lincoln and the Union? Uh, is, is, is the idea of the Union cause as simplistically about abolishing slavery well that's a, interesting a, a myth Tom, that's can, going to be sustainable i think you're the point that you made about
1: there being two myths of the american civil war the one being the lost cause the other being the myth of the virtue of the union um that myth is a lot harder to shift not least because it has it probably has strong more elements truth to of it. truth yeah. it has more truth to it and um, I don't think Lincoln's going to be properly cancelled uh, anytime soon. In fact, I think I see a kind of revival of a, an important element of the Lincoln myth, which is the labeling of Confederates as traitors. You know, I, d- I did an interview for my podcast with Ty Sidul, who is a white West Point, uh, Southern born, uh, West Point educated guy who's written a book called Robert E. Lee and Me in which he talks about his, it's almost like a kind of Christian uh, awakening story of his recognition of the evil of this man who he had venerated in his childhood. But one of the key maneuvers that Ty makes in that book is not just his recognition that Lee was a supporter of slavery, which is shocking to him, to Ty, but also... That he's a traitor. And and that's something that, um, you know, is maybe hard for us, harder for us as non-Americans to really get on board with, because we're like, well, you know, I mean, Lee was only a traitor because he lost the war. He was no more a traitor. And then he's only I mean, George Washington was a traitor in the same sense. It's just he was on the winning side. Right. But for someone like Ty the fact that lee is a traitor is like his winning card for why lee's portrait needs to be taken down from west point and why his name needs to be removed from military bases
2: but i mean the the comparison with washington isn't just a flip one i mean washington was a slave owning secessionist and so if you are pulling down statues of of lee i mean yeah pull them all down and put up george the 3rd so you can
1: you can definitely see how and and for people on the right in american talking in this kind of way warning of the thin end of the wedge so you can definitely see how you can get from taking down statues of lee to taking down statues of jefferson and of washington i think it's harder to see how you get to taking down statues of lincoln though yeah. because which was your question because lincoln is the re-founder of the nation in a, a, and he's
2: re he's washed the republican robe white to use his own language yeah and as you say perhaps perhaps the, the current intensity of the debate because it is reminiscent of the kind of the the violence of opinion and mood in the, the 1850s and 60s, perhaps it will, you know, it'll make Lincoln stop
0: being a kind of dead figure. It'll make him more alive, more kind of contemporary. That's what I wanted to ask Tom, because the intensity of the debate reflects an intensity of political polarization in the United States in the last 10 years or so. And you know, when we did a podcast, one of the first podcasts in our series, um, and it was just, I think, before, wasn't it, Tom, the Trump-Biden election? Yeah. Um, and it was about how civil wars start. And I don't think there's anybody who could have listened to the first episode in this epic that you've done for us, Adam, showing, I have to say, Herculean stamina, um, who who hasn't, I, I doubt there are many people who haven't thought at some point, you know, the United States torn apart by these terrible arguments about race, um, about the tension between the locality and the and the federal government, but about what it is to be an American—all of those kinds of things—and and there can be very few people who've listened to all that and haven't thought about the 21st century. Do you think? I mean, is it is it completely fanciful to say that the same kind or similar cleavages and arguments could? In, in, a, in a, frankly, a heavily armed society could lead America to a similarly dark place um, in the next 10 years or so. The thing that
1: worries me is that today in the United States, for the first time since the 1850s, you have two political parties who are not only operating in their own information universes, it's not just that they don't share the same facts. It's not just that the level of polarization between them has risen to the level where, you know, whatever it is, 70% of parents don't want their child to date someone from the other party. It's, It's that level of, it's not just that. It's also that the, the parties are on opposite sides of all of the main cleavages in American society. So the division over race Um, over over the, the historic injustice done to black Americans in particular, but also immigration and the question of cultural diversity in all of its forms. Up until a few decades ago, the political parties shared out those schisms. So, you know, historically, you had a Republican Party which had the support of a lot of African-Americans and that was quite tolerant, relatively speaking, on race issues. And you had a Democratic Party that catered to immigrants, broadly speaking. And now on those two issues, for example, and there are many others that we could talk about, the two parties represent the two different camps. And it's impossible for me to think of an issue, a really important issue that is a real schism, You know, whether it's abortion or gun control, in which the the two parties don't polarize opinion. That was the situation just before the civil war, when the the Republican party uh, in the North deliberately and self-consciously in order to win a a national election gathered together all of those who felt threatened by slavery or by, by the slave power Um, for most of the time since it hasn't been that case. So, if things go disastrously
0: wrong in the United States, I think that was that is why it will be. But it has an intensity, doesn't it? That it also had in the 1850s. Yes. So, in other words, there are times in Britain where the two parties, the two main parties, have been wildly at variance on 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 lots of issues on on all on almost all the key issues of the day. Labour and the Tories in the 1970s or the 1980s, let's say, but that didn't quite have that kind of. Inflammatory cultural salience that made people think: if we lose the next election, our entire way of life is threatened by these treacherous, dastardly, wicked people. I mean, I think there were probably moments in the nineteen
1: eighty three general election when we came pretty, pretty close <laughs> to that. But, but, but no, you're you're exactly right, and that is how that is how American politics is now. It is, as you say, that sense that every election, the stakes are incredibly high because the enemies of the republic will be in control if we lose this election. So everything, everything is at stake. Our way of life, our republic, our values, everything that we hold dear are being threatened. The other side are enemies. And there's always been, I mean, this is nothing new in American history. Americans have been at each other's throats over those questions literally since the 1780s. But there are moments when it has been... More intense than others. One moment was in the 1850s, and another moment is right now.
2: Uh, well, Adam, I, I can't thank you enough, and I, I, I mean, I think the whole this whole series, uh, perhaps particularly the last, you know, the last 20 minutes or so, have been absolutely kind of ringing demonstration of the reason that history is never just history. um You know, it, the past really lives on in into the present and perhaps the future. Um, and if you want to hear more of Adam talking perhaps along these very lines, I don't know. Uh, He has his podcast, The Last Best Hope, question mark, um, about American history. An excellent podcast. Unmissable. So thank you all so much for listening. Thank you particularly to Adam for,
0: as Dominic said, Herculean effort and four incredible episodes. What the listeners don't know is he has done this all in one go. And what is more, he's done it on his daughter's birthday, which is really... (laughs) Um, which may or may not be coincident
2: (laughs) and against the terrible deadline because you're off to America tomorrow Um, I am I am but thank you both this has been really good fun thank you bye bye everybody thank you bye bye thanks for listening to the rest is history for bonus episodes early access ad free listening and access to our chat community Please sign up at RestIsHistoryPod.com That's RestIsHistoryPod.com